You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. You know how we always say we want to get comfy, cozy, and crippled on the show? Well, now, guess what? You actually can, because we have new merch! You can go to the merch link in the show notes and click on the link and you'll be brought to our partners at TeePublic where you can pick up a t-shirt, a hoodie, a mask, a crew neck, a baseball tee, all with our slogan, shining a bright light on disability stories in a variety of colors and sizes just for you. So if you want to wear a shirt that really is comfy, cozy, and crippled, you can do so right now by clicking the merch link in our show notes. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonapussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectable daddy host, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this show started, everybody. Just before we get to the shoutouts for this week, I want to say thank you so much for sticking around as I toy around with new formats and toy around with putting 
bonus shows like the handicasting every now and then and i really love the variety of stuff that we are doing with this show and i still i was toying around with changing the name of the podcast from disability after dark to something like disability uncensored but the more and more i thought about it the more and more i realized that i love this name i love this brand because really disability after dark does mean shining a bright light on all the stuff around disability that we're not talking about whether that is whether we're talking about sex or whether we're talking about disability in other ways we need a light shone on this stuff because disability stories are not being told and so i want to thank you for sticking around and listening to all of the different kind of episodes that I'm putting out as I play around with different things that I want to talk about, that interest me. And so I just want to thank you for that. And you're going to hear different new cool things that I test out, new different kind of stories, and new different kind of series as I work things through. But thank you for being with us on this ride for almost five full years. Wow. Thank you all so much for being here. And now let's get to the shout outs. Also, just before the shoutouts, one quick thing. I'm, I'm the worst host ever, I know. Just before the shoutouts, if you wanted to submit an idea for an episode idea or something you want me to talk about that I haven't shone a light on yet, please email me at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com or andrew at andrewgerza.com. If that email is weird, email both of them and let me know the kind of shows and the kind of programming that you want to hear every Saturday when we do a show. What kind of things around disability do you want to hear and do you want to shine a light on that we haven't talked about yet? What is something you think, as a disability awareness consultant, I should be aware of? And where can I use my platform to make those stories shine? So let me know. I'd love to hear from you. For the shout-out today, I want to give a shout-out to one of my Patreon supporters who just pledged $5 a month to keep the bright light shining on Disability After Dark and on the show like this. So, my Patreon shout-out today goes to Brian O'Dell. And for that, you get the show one day early and a weird, awkward, kind of sexy pun for me. And it is this. Brian O'Dell. Oh, well, hello, Brian O'Dell. Thank you so much for your pledge. And I never said the pun was good, but I figured, oh, well, rhymed with O'Dell. So thank you for your pledge and for your $5 a month pledge. And if you out there want to pledge some money to keep the bright lights on this show shining, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or more if you want or as well as a yearly amount if that works for your budget and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and for your hard-earned dollars you will get the show one day early before the rest of the world and a weird awkward shout out like that I gave to Brian O'Dell just now so if you want to do that go ahead if you can and if you are not financially able to pledge i fully understand if you could leave us a review on your podcast app that would mean a lot to us too so thank you again so much for your support and now for real let's get to the show so last week on the show you heard us chat with sexy as fuck ginger porn star seamus o'reilly and interrogate the question what would happen to seamus if he became a wheelchair user tomorrow 
And in the interest of variety and talking about things we don't talk about, now we're going to switch to something totally different and talk to my friend Josephine Cornette because they are they are an art historian out of Belgium and they approached me and said I love your show and I love what you do and I want to talk to you about disability in the art world and ableism in the art world and so we sit down and talk about how there are more disabled artists in the world than Frida Kahlo we sit down and talk about about Josephine's experience with fibular hemimelia and how they have had to disclose their disabilities and how they are very direct in how they disclose their disabilities and we talk about all the different ways disclosure looks for them and what that looks like for them. We also talk about ableism in the art world a lot. We talk about some different artists who actually had disabilities that we don't know about and we also talk about how art was somehow used to depict disabled people in certain ways that wasn't necessarily the truth and we talk about ableism in art academia we talk about a lot of stuff here um and i really enjoyed sitting down with josephine we also talk about a project they're working on where they map the scars on their body and where they also allow for other disabled people to map the scars on their body because they believe that scars tell a story and i totally also agree with this i believe that the scars we hold as disabled people tell a story and tell tell you ab about us and tell you about our journey as disabled people. So Josephine lets us know about that project a little bit. Plus, we talk about a whole bunch of other things. It was really fun to sit down with her and talk about art and ableism and disability and different things like that because I love history and I love art and I love the way that we can talk about these things and include disability and infuse disability into these subjects and that's what Josephine and I did today um it was a really really fun episode we recorded a, a few months ago back in April and I really really hope that you enjoy it because I certainly did again I love sitting down with Josephine and talking about art disability and so so much more so without further ado here's my interview on art disability and ableism in the art world with my friend Josephine Cornette right now on Disability After Dark. Josephine, hello! Hi! Hi, I'm so happy to have you on Disability After Dark. You are one of the, you are one of the people that has been so kindly persistent and so kind with me when I have had to change things and move things around. And we've been planning this since, <laughs> since January to do this yeah. interview. Um, and it's now, by the time this comes out, it's going to be like June-ish. So like, I'm so happy we're finally here. And I'm so happy you've been so accommodating and allowing for me to have disability moments and have to change everything and move everything around. So I really appreciate that. But yay, you're here. So Woo! yay. We did it. We did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank I am you. so excited to have you. So yeah. excited to have you. Can Can you... Tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, um, my name is Josephine. I go by the pronouns they and she. And I am an artist. I am an art historian. I am an activist. Um, and I happen to have a disability. 
awesome. I like how you, I like, I love, I love listening to how everybody describes their disabilities because every single person says it so differently. And the really? way you just said it there was like, well, because, you know, some people say I'm a disabled person. Some people say I'm a person with a disability. Mm-hmm. But you said, I happen to have a disability. And I just like how, how different and diverse the way we describe our disability can be. So that's cool. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what your disabilities are and how they impact your day today? Yeah, um, I was, um, I'm born with a congenital disability. So I was born with it. Um, and it's actually a very rare disability. Um, it's called fibula, um, yeah, fibula humemilia. Um, it's very difficult to pronounce. I could be even pronouncing it wrong, which would be awesome. Um, so it's so rare, it's even difficult to pronounce. Um, but what it basically means is that during the pregnancy, something in either the arms or uh, the legs stops developing. And it's always asymmetrical. So it's always one arm or one leg. And it kind of like, I think the best way to describe it is that like it, you, happen to hen- you, you happen to end up with just like one and a half leg or one and a half arm. And then it varies from um, some people lacking specific bones to people um, having the uh, beginning and the start, uh, like beginning and the end of the bone. Um, yeah. And then like it starts in different types. It's very like categorized and also like it's it's like diagnostically it's very difficult because there's so, so many little people with this disability. Um, and it's also very difficult to do research because one of the most um, obvious treatments most of the time is just amputation. So there's not even information because it's just amputated soon after birth. Um, but I yeah. am one of the few people that uh, where my parents did make the choice to kind of like keep my leg. Um, and then I went through a procedure of like leg lengthening, very hard, very traumatizing, very painful surgeries. I had a lot of them. Um, yeah. And this kind of like, as of today, I, like, I am um, very passable. Um, so most of the time I really have to come out of the closet and say that I have this disability. Um, and for me, I think the biggest impact in my life is that I do struggle with chronic pain. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you basically have to think that like everything um, an able-bodied person can do takes twice the amount of energy for me. So like I can bike, I can swim, I can run, but just very clumsy and not so very long. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, don't feel too bad about that because you have me beat. I certainly, I can't. I used to bike when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I can sort of swim, but if you're not there, I'll drown. Um, so yeah. you have me beat, don't worry. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I used to, like, I, I know that, like, biking for me was one of the few sports that I could do. And then I remember that my parents very, very, very much pushed me to bike, like, as much as possible because it was also very healthy for my muscles and it would get yeah. more better. Um, like, very much thinking to, like, when you get older, you're going to uh, have some benefits from doing this now. So like, but yeah. it kind of like conditioned me to really hate bicycling because just like it hurts, you have to push, you go uphill, it doesn't work. And, and like, I really don't like biking at all, um, but I can, which does give me like in, in transportation and accessibility does give me certain, certain advantages. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then next um, to that, I um, 
consider myself or like I identify as psychologically a very vulnerable person. And if I would have to label that, it would be in the terms of borderline, like uh, a borderline personality disorder. Um, so that's also happening in my life as well. Wow. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that was on the forum. Um, no. But thank you so much yes. for. I often you forget so for it. Yeah. I forget my own well, disabilities. That's okay. I forget mine sometimes. I wish I, well, sometimes I forget mine and sometimes I wish I could forget mine. But um, yeah. thank you so much for disclosing. I know how, how, how hard it can be to come out, especially on a public forum like this to tell, you know, the, yes, definitely. the, the level of disability you have. So I appreciate that. Um, how does the, your, how do all of your disabilities, like you talked a little bit about disclosure a minute ago and coming out of the closet. How mm-hmm. Do you do how do you come out of the disability closet how do you disclose what does that look like for you yeah I mean that's like a million dollar question I mean if we knew the answer to that and if there was some kind of like uh, like standard form you could fill in and then you have like your past to come out of the closet it would be awesome wouldn't it be great it'd be so great yeah 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 yes um I mean I grew up knowing that I had to be very verbal and very affirmative in my communication because people didn't see my disability. So I had to always insist on the fact that I would get help because I knew that if something would wrong, I would be the first one um, who got like victimized by that. Or like if something went wrong, it would specifically go wrong with me. So I learned to be very verbal. And then I know that as a kid, like I learned these like standard four sentences of my name is Josephine, I have a disability, it looks like this and I can't do that. <laughs> and that's how I come out of the closet. Very direct and very like boom, 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 here it is. Yes, yes. And it used to be like, kid, like as a kid, it used to be like this. And like by now, I know that like in conversations, I just prefer to, and it's kind of like, it's almost like some kind of test when I meet new people. I love to just, swiftly drop it in a conversation and see if they pick up on it and then depending on what their reaction is and whether that becomes a conversation whether this becomes a good conversation or like an ableist conversation that will definitely define how my future relationship will be with that person so i very casually mention it oh just like hey i have a disability hi i have a disability i have this yes Yeah, yeah 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 or in like hey, can we meet that place? No, 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 I can't. I have a disability, but we can meet that place. <laughs> I like that. It's really stealth. It's very like, ha, I dropped it. What are you going to do now? How are you going to react? Yeah. Like the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's, it starts to be a little, a little bit of a game because like, I, I am very used to having to come out of the closet all the time. So like, it, it, for me, it really became something that I could play with. And then I know that like in my relationships, I see people that, are still very much struggling with like even the question in itself like am I disabled do I fit this category and then sometimes I have to like have conversations or send emails to people and then I have to address and said like if there would be a thing as a disability club and if I would be capable of giving you a ticket to it you would definitely have it but then like the bigger question is like do you feel comfortable with it and then like yeah. I get these specific questions on like how do I come out of a closet and it's like I cannot answer it it's something you have to do for yeah there's yourself. no way but it's I... a really personal it's so yeah. personal there's no way you can absolutely like, absolutely I, and I because I get it I get it all the same time too how do I disclose how like how should you disclose I get mm-hmm. asked all the time when I do interviews and yes. I'm like I don't I don't know I have no idea how you disclose because it's such a personal 
choice. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the way you disclose it also gives a hint of what your characteristics are and, and who you are as a person and also what relationship you have with the disability you have. Yeah. And I mean, I think disclosure, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think disclosure really depends on the context of where you are, who you're with, what, what time of day it is, how you're feeling. Like, oh, absolutely. All of that plays into how you disclose. Yeah. And so that's why it was so funny when you said when I was a kid, I had four, you know, standard sentences that I said all the time because you got so used to having to find a way to disclose that you're like, oh, fuck, I'll just make a sentence. Yes. I'll make, <laughs> that's kind I'll make of how temp- it happens. <laughs> yeah. Like you'll make a template for yourself because it's easier that way. Yes. Yes. And it's also like it sticks also like it sticks to the surface. Because I mean, yeah. as soon as like, I, I mean, I can do the disclosure, like a very practical disclosure. I need this, this and this and this and help. And I need this accessibility or I need this and that. But then there's, I think there's another type of disclosure where you disclosure what it means to you and how it impacts your life and, and how you relate to it. And that is a completely different conversation. And those are, I, I think, even for me, still ridiculously hard to have. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there really is levels of disclosure. Mm-hmm. And it, like, if I want to get romantic with you or I want to have like a sexual relationship with somebody, that's a whole, like to discuss my disability in those ways is a whole other mind game Absolutely. of like, how, yeah. how do I tell them this? Will they run away? Am I afraid? Like, But if I'm talking to a medical professional and I need to lay out the facts of my disability, I can very easily just be like, boom, boom, CP, here it is, boom, boom. But if it's <laughs> if it's a deeper relationship, whether that's a sexual yeah. relationship or like just even friendship, it's so hard to get into the like deepness of disability. So I totally agree with that, that there are levels yeah. of disclosure and, and there's there's different ways it's done for sure. Yeah, like we, we I think as in like, if you're disabled people and you have a lot of experiences with hospitals and like the medical system, like you learn to wrap up yourself, I think, in medical talk and you also like address your own disability as something medical. While I mean, I could just also like previously just told me like I have this disability and it makes me feel very ashamed sometimes and I feel guilty for it and I suffer from a lot of internalized ableism and that would be like an equally valuable description of how it impacts my life. But um, because of the way that I was brought up and the way that I learned to communicate about myself, I just very quickly go to it's this and this and this and this and this. It's my leg. I cannot do this. I can't do that. And like you, you wrap yourself up in this medical complex, I think sometimes. Yeah, because most people are not ready for the nuances and the like, they're not ready for a deeper discussion. They want to know, yes. like yeah. when somebody asks us the ever, the ever continuing ableist question of what's wrong with you? They don't want you to go into like the deeper emotional like mm-hmm. parts of being disabled. They want, tell yes. me exactly what's wrong so I can compartmentalize you and understand. But yes. what they forget is that it's such a deeper journey than just my leg or for me, my, my CP. It's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one question that I get often, I mean, like most of the time when people answer, it's the question, what is wrong with you? And then I'm like, oh, poof. <sighs> like of all the questions we went for that one and then the second one and then I just get furious is that um and I don't even know why but a lot of people always ask me was it an accident um I know because- why I can I can guess why they ask you if it was an accident because 
if it was an accident, it makes you closer to quote normal than before. Yeah, maybe. If, if you, yeah. If you say yeah. I was born like this, then somehow in their mind you're like this alien that was like, oh, you can be born like that. Wow. But if you say I was in a car accident or something happened to me, then they can go, oh, so you were once like me. You were once normal, right? And oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. I never, because I, it, I never understood why they always go to the accident thing. Um, but then, yeah, because like, they, yeah, mainly then like, my answer is just, I, most of the time I get very annoyed and I answer yes, and the accident was my birth. And then they don't know how to react to it and they get very shocked. And then like I changed the subject to what it previously was. And then um, I like quickly address it with humor and then um, just continue back to the previous conversation. And yeah, just- and try to like run away from it because it's so, but I think, you know, is, and I, I have a question before we move on to the next one, is the next, well, let me try again. Let me, I lost my words there for a minute. Is the, the, the culture around disability in Belgium, is it something that is like, is it more progressive? Is it less progressive? What is, mm-hmm. what's the vibe there if you're a disabled person in Belgium? Oof, the vibe. Um, I have to say that like in Belgium, like sometimes it feels like when it's about disability, <laughs> like for me, honestly, it feels like we're still living in the eighties. Um, oh, wow. Then specifically when you're, when we're talking about like emancipation, um, I mean, on the surface, there's not, I mean, on the surface, there's some stuff happening, but it's mainly, I mean, in representation in media, as you see, it's still very much from this like, or like acuteness factor or from a care perspective. Um, so like the, the emancipation sometimes is very, very, very absent. Um, but there are, for example, in Belgium, there are some possibilities of educating yourself in disability studies. So we do provide the courses if you would want them and it is possible to gain some knowledge on it. And of course there are some very cool queer and crip kids here. Um, but in generally, I think um, we are really, really behind on the Anglo-American field, I think. Um, like the, specifically like the um, emancipation and like the, the justice movement is not as big as I know it. Uh, I know it's as big um, in, in the UK or in the US or in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, so and I mean, a lot of work here. Part of me is like that sucks. The other part of me is like that's great because that means we can, you can, we can come in and like change the world over there. So like, yeah, yeah, so. it is an opportunity at the same time. And I mean, you can, you do. I do feel since a couple of years that it's char- like it's it's starting to change a little bit. Um, as for example, like since October, I work for a art magazine that writes reviews and like art critical pieces on what is happening in Belgium or like more specifically in Flanders. And every year they have a couple of people who are invited to work along on a specific issue um, with a specific subject. And this year um, it was ableism. So they asked me to be part um, of this group. And now- Oh, cool. yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, it's completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a previous issue on decolonization, and now this one is about ableism. Um, and I mean, mainly my reaction to it is like it's very, like it's it's quite late that this is happening. This should have happened way earlier, but at least like it's happening. Twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, and it is happening. So we have like this issue coming up. I think also by the time that this interview is going online, the issue is also going to be 
um, like printed and, and distributed already. Um, with Ooh, like send me send me a copy or oh yes I, definitely let me, let me yes. know because I want to I want to definitely read that wow yes yeah definitely and with like artists dancers musicians um, fashion designers who all work or in the field of disability studies or identify as disabled persons and with like a very good scale of like having a lot of people with disabilities writing about how they experience it what they want to change. Um, like addressing certain topics, like how it can influence, like what is a disability aesthetic? How can we incorporate it into art? And and like, I, it's going to be awesome. That's and the really title cool. is Crip. So yeah. So really cool. some I mean, stuff is happening. It's so rare that we hear about ableism in the art world. And so I think mm-hmm. it's really great that, I mean, again, I agree with you, it is way too late and should have happened like 10 years ago, but at least it's happening now. Yes. Um, I want to move into the art world for a minute there because when you wrote me and why I was immediately drawn for, to your application was because of what you do. And I was like, I want to have this awesome. person on right away. As soon as, as soon as I read it, I was like, yes, please. Because I am obsessed with like history and like all that stuff and I love to see how disability plays in. So you work as, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I wrote down that you work as an art historian. Um, yes. Which is such a cool job. It's yes. secretly, a, <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with all of the, like, the the art historians on YouTube. And I, 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 like, secretly watch all that stuff. And it's really a soothing thing for me to watch sometimes. So I, I love all that stuff. So tell us about the connection between art history and disability. Um, there is a big connection, um, although as of for now, it's still quite unknown and not like very much explored. Um, but within certain like niche fields of art history, there is a possibility to talk about um, ableism and disability. Um, and then I think we can kind of like, like I, I, I look at it as in like, there's two ways to address it. You can look in like representation, how are disabled people portrayed and what does it tell about how we think of them? And then secondly, I think there's this more like socio-political and even economic structure of like, how do disabled people work within the field and their practice um, within something as an art world? Um, So you can address the art that is being made. And then most of the time, it's mostly the works that we know is by able-bodied people making images about disabled people and what is this telling? I mean, like I, I identify like as a culture of Marxist. So like, I believe that everything that we make and everything that is in museums and in galleries and the stuff that we produce reflects on the society that we have. So if you totally. look at that, you can see what is happening there or you can look like very even like policy wise and see like, okay, where are the artists with disabilities? Um, why are they seen or why they're not seen? And what can we do to help that? And how does uh, how do any like power dynamics work with that? Um, yeah. And I mean specifically for me, like I am educated as an art historian, so I don't uh, like I have the education, but I mainly like I am somewhere like in between being an artist and an art historian. Like my own personal work is very academic, but I don't like the academia in generally because it's very restrictive and sometimes I'm going to approach things differently and then I identify as an artist and then I go back to an art historian again and like I switch (laughs) around with these terms a lot and because like my work in itself and what I make personally is exactly on that intersection 
Yeah. There's so much to unpack there. And like so one of the things you said about it, you know, when an artist makes images about disabled people that tells us how we, that tells society how we should view mm-hmm. a disabled person. Are there any examples of art that, in your opinion, d- depict a disabled person? Like any like famous art pieces that depict a disabled person that you could like speak on? Well, I think we have like, I think, I think the canon, like the art canon, like the, the, the works that like we all collectively know, um, yeah. often have a lot of people with disability in it and we don't even see it. I mean, like there's this one work, um, Le Mecenas, that depicts like um, people with, um, how do you call this again, True, Help me out. My English is failing me here. People who have disabilities in um, their growing patterns. Uh, I can't um, think of the word now. And little I don't, people? Little people. I don't know. Yeah, I might maybe make a very ableist mistake now, but I can't find it. Yeah, and I might have too. Slacking me. Ah, we're bad disability right activists. I know. We're, we're really not super good at that. So, <laughs> but like it depicts like. Uh, it depicts dwar- little people. Yeah, but people with dwarfism um, is, for example, in La Mecenas, and everybody looks over it. There are despic- uh, depictions of, um, I mean, for example, if you go about mental illness, there is a lot, a lot of problematic imagery about psychiatry and um, uh, mental mental illness as like in, in depictions, like when we talk about witchcraft, when we talk about depictions on mental, mental institutions, for example, you have that going. And then there's even this other branch that is also very complicated to look at. And then you have outsider art, which is art. Um, and like, it's even in the name, like I don't really like the name, but it's it's mainly addresses art that is being made by people with um, disabilities. And then mostly it's mental or cognitive disabilities um, who are producing art. And then this, like, it's something that specifically grew in like the 20th century. And then you see specifically there that, um, these things are being seen or like addressed as like very pure and very good um in some kind of like oh so there's a whole like primitivism and then they like yeah there's a whole layer of like artistic ableism and like oh wow somebody with an with a with an intellectual disability or or mental illness made this and so because they made it they're the best like they're so good and they're so it's so mm-hmm. pure yeah yeah that's kind yeah, of and then maybe wow, the reaction is like and this oh i hate this it's like oh it's so pure like no it's not pure it's somebody communicating with the set of skills that this person has yeah and it's like, more, not more than that but um, that shows you how deep our idea of like you're disabled so therefore you're angelic and therefore you're a cherub and therefore yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so like you have these like categorizations of outsider art for people like art being made by people with disabilities you have like hidden stories of um people that are now in the canon that actually could maybe be identified as disabled people but that aspect of their life is never explored then you have like a couple of people with disabilities that are very 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 much explored but in very problematic ways and then you have like representation and like very general depictions of people with disabilities some kind of like hiding in all the collective images that we already know. Yeah, I did a, I did an inter, I did a, a podcast episode like months and months ago where I look at, I can't remember what disability I was doing a, what's your condition episode and one of the disabilities, the person had club foot and it was somebody had painted somebody with a club foot 
but they never said they had a club foot. They just put it in a painting. And it's a real, I can't remember what it is, but it's a really famous painting. And I remember seeing that going, wow, I really wish they would have said like, yeah. this person is disabled in here. I'm going to paint them. Or like, here's my portrait of them. Um, how do you think we can make this kind of art history more inclusive? I think the first thing is diversifying. Um, we need more representations of people with disabilities. I think like it's, I think it all starts there. Um, if we look at what is in our like art books and what is there in our galleries and museums and art exhibitions, it's still very male, very cisgender, very white very um, heteronormative and also very able-bodied. And we are not going to address the issue if we do not see representation of people with disabilities. Um, and with broadly. that, I, yeah, broadly. And with that specifically, I mean like for representation as in like we need to see these narratives as in like, what is it like to have a disability? And being aware of how problematic sometimes an ableist gaze can be. And at the same time, you need the opportunity as a disabled artist to be capable of identifying that way and make your work um, get into the platform that it needs um, to, to address what you want to tell. Yeah, I think also, you know, just going back to the history piece, because I'm obsessed with history and I love it so much, but I also think that like, you know, I'd love for somebody to go back throughout history and find mm -hmm. the artists who hid their disability and didn't say they were disabled and hid it because of the stigma and the fear and didn't and were living with disabilities and painting stuff that we don't know about and we don't we never said oh this person was, has a disability or has a mental illness or has chronic pain or has you know I'd love for us to go back throughout history and find those humans yes. and be like actually this really famous artist has yes. this thing Mm -hmm. Like, I love that. There yes. should be a whole book about that. Yes, absolutely. Like, I hope that this book, I mean, that apparently it's, it, I hope this book is written already somewhere and I just haven't found it yet. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't found it either. If but, it is. Yeah, if you let me know, like, if you find it, like, let me know. Like, I need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Please let us know. If you've already yes. read the book or you're working yes. on it or I if you want to work on it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not written yet and you want to make it somebody other listening. Yeah. But like, I mean, like, well, one of these examples is Matisse, um, which is like a very famous 20th century French painter. Um, very heavily canonized, very famous. And during the end of his life, he got cancer. And due to the cancer, he was wheelchair bound. So he couldn't make the big works that he was making anymore. Like he couldn't make them anymore. And then yeah. um, he shifted from drawing in bed or drawing from a wheelchair. And then what he did is actually like, it's very cool. Like he took this like very long stick and then attached a piece uh, of charcoal on the end of it. And that's how he started to draw. And you can wow. specifically even see that like his work from that point on, from the point that he was in a wheelchair, the, um, uh, the work in itself, like the visual aesthetics of it also changed. Yet nobody is addressing this. Like nobody is addressing that the fact that Matisse might have made different work because of the fact that he at that point was at a wheelchair. Apparently this is not something that we address and we still address Matisse as is like very famous and very good painter but we don't address that specific narrative in it and 
it's maybe it's maybe difficult to do this because we don't know at this point if Matisse really identified as disabled, but just the fact that there is this like accidentally quote unquote forgetting to share this information is very telling of how we define the stories that we tell about the artists that we want like the artists that we want to know. And I mean it also it also speaks to the history of to be an artist, you have to be considered able-bodied and you have to be considered like really, you know, really able to do your craft, able period to do your craft. And I mean, you said in the forum also that there was a point where you thought that you couldn't be an artist because yes. of your disability. Can yes. you share that story? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I only started to realize only like a couple of months ago with thinking back on everything. Like I have this, I have this running joke with Frida Kahlo you can't like like you don't know how many times people started a conversation with me and then said like oh you're an art historian oh you're an artist do you know Frida Kahlo yes I know Frida Kahlo I know her very well <laughs> like this is the only artist with a disability that identifies as disabled that actually gained some platform and gained some like um some access in the art world and like even the reason why that is happening is only because of like years and years and years and years of feminist methodology and art history um so of course I know this person and I started to like be very very fed up with the fact like why is like every <laughs> book about art and disability why does every book with about art and disability have a color cover with a painting of Frida Kahlo or mentions her in the introduction. I mean, like there are so many other more people than Frida Kahlo, but apparently this is the thing that we always uh, come back to. And, and then I remember that my first confrontation with the work of Frida Kahlo was back when I was, I think I must have been like 15 or 16 years old. And we were watching like the movie that was made about her life, um, so right. the movie Frida. And we watched that in classes. And all of a sudden, like I was this kid who like drew, drew a lot like during my whole childhood, it has been something that has been with me for like as, as long as I can remember. And then all of a sudden I had this big realization of seeing this movie and thinking, oh, so I can, I am allowed to do this. And because as of some very strange way, and I think it was also because of like, I think it's partly also because my mom and my dad always, said that I didn't, couldn't go uh, do art school in high school because in Belgium you can do it here in, uh, in, in like high school levels. Yeah. Um, and I repeatedly asked them over and over and over again, can I go to this school? I want to do this school. I want to go there. And they always said, no, you can't go because you can do a lot better than that. La, 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 la. Um, and then so I didn't think that I was allowed by my parents, first of all. And then I just never had the example of the fact that a person with a disability can actually have the option of being an artist because I was thinking oh dear I am already disabled I'm going to have no life I'm going to have a job with no security I am already this very complicated and different like difficult person and then I'm even going to choose this profession that nobody is going to understand so I, I got to the point somewhere in my head where I believed that it wasn't even something that I can't do, but I wasn't even allowed to do it yeah. until slowly kind of like this, the shift kind of in, in, in that behavior for me was seeing that movie and thinking like, Oh, so it is possible. 
So in the end, it is Frida Kahlo who got me into arts. And also my mom, when I was 18, and when I had to choose like my education, university education, my mom telling me that if I really wanted to be an artist, that I would have to study it now and take it seriously, or I would never do it again. And then I think two weeks after that, I subscribed to the art school and I started my art, art education. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, I love that seeing an example of, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the person that played Frida in the movie was, it was some Hayek, right? It wasn't a disabled person. Oh no, of course not. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Um, so as ableist and horrible as that part is, at least you mm-hmm. saw some kind of representation of a disabled person in the world. And it's kind of cool that seeing that representation of a real disabled person played by a non-disabled yes. actor. Yes, you know, because like, I am absolutely sure if I would watch this movie again, I would absolutely hate it. Because like, I remember also <laughs> the scene where Frida has um, her accident. It's like glorified with like gold pigments and birds flying around. And, I'm, I, and I would just like, I, I didn't watch it anymore because I just knew that I would like run up the walls out of fury and anger. Well, at least, at least the characterization of Frida Kahlo made you realize that disabled people yes. can do stuff. That's the good part. Um, yes. One of the things that you mentioned in the questionnaire that I'm really excited to hear more about because I loved the way you said it was you're working on a personal project about a map of scars. And mm-hmm. we know that so many people with disabilities and so many disabled people have both physical scars and you know from surgery and stuff like that and then they also have emotional scars as a result of ableism can you tell me more about this project and also what scar what do your scars represent to you yeah um i this project that i'm doing is uh, a collaboration together with a beautiful belgian organization called engagement arts and this is an artist-led feminist movement that is tackling sexism and sexual harassment in the art world. Um, So I work together with them and I'm also uh, a part of their core organization. So I'm doing it together with them. And so they basically give me the tools and they give me funding to have this like absolute freedom to research and do whatever I want to. So I started thinking of like, how can I find a way to talk about my scars in a way that I don't use language, because as soon as we use language, you translate something. You translate something that you feel. You feel it on your skin, it's on your body. Sometimes you forget that it's there. Sometimes you're very aware of the fact that it's there, but it's there and it's not written in language. It's a form, it's a gesture that is there. And then I started thinking of like within this project where I mainly focused on like ableism and art education, I started focusing with like interviewing people and then all of a sudden I said like oh but so many people here have scars and what is going on there and and seeing these issues that they addressed as like their experiences with ableism and stuff everything like started shifting in my head and then I kind of got to this concept like if like okay if I want people to tell their stories in a very consentful and a very safe environment in a non-lingual way, so not using language, like how, right. how, how do you do that? And then I started thinking of like, okay, but 
did I even do this myself? Like, do I even look at my own scars? And then I just like very, very impulsively took a very big piece of paper and I started to just make a scale of them, like a one-on-one scale. And then all of a sudden there's this pattern there coming and it's somewhere in between like some kind of like, it's a constellation or it's like, like, Um, like mountains and like it started to look a little bit like a map and then I thought like okay can I ask this um, for other people is it okay for me if I ask them to do this because then basically what you do is that you give them a score like you use music sheets to um, make music you can write a score for somebody to do a performance and then I was thinking okay where is your safest environment hopefully at home so you have to be able to do it at home. So I need to be capable of getting it there. And then I started collaborating together with an amazing graphic designer called Kay Sendak, um, which is also a good friend of mine and somebody that I really, really trusted with this like very sensitive and, and intimate material. And then we thought and thought and video called and had like early morning coffees and whatever all together. And then we kind of came up with this system of making an envelope and the information is on the inside of the envelope. So you kind of like get this package that you have to tear open and then you find the instructions and like the manual of how you have to do it. You get a pencil and you get this very soft and soft and smooth, very silky feeling paper. Like we wanted to have paper that feels nice on your skin to use folded in a very specific way so that it just falls open as soon as you like pick it up and a semi-transparent returning envelope. And then we basically wrote the whole score of, okay, go to where you feel safe. Um, Your scars mean something very physical, but they also mean something very emotional. And wherever they are on your body is actually telling something about yourself. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a one-on-one map of what is on your body. Because chances are, that you probably sometimes maybe even forgot that they were there or you didn't even know that they looked that way if you could look at it from a distance. And then if you feel comfortable enough, you can fold it back up, put it in a semi-transparent envelope, and then you can send it back to me. And then I basically have a map of your scars and in some kind of very symbolical and poetic way, I have your story. And I can grasp it, I can archive it, and I can keep it safe. Um, and that is what the subjective mapping of scars is about. That's the project. And so the end go- is the end goal going to be like a book of, like a, a map book of scars? Like what is the, what is like the I end? I think so. Yeah, I think I think the the, I mean, as of for now, all the envelopes are still somewhere around the world. So I still have to receive. Um, uh, I still have to receive the envelopes. Um, and so I am um, checking my mailbox very thoroughly every morning. And I'm like, I'm going to scream when the first one arrives back. I'm going to be so happy. Um, and it's such a cool idea. A, yeah, yeah. And I love the idea of working uh, with um, the postal system because it's this thing that we often forget that is still there. Like you don't have to send it by computer. You can just send it by post. Yeah, it's just like yeah. like mail art. I think is very cool, um, and I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a book. Maybe it's going to be an exhibition. 
maybe it's going to be not even something at all. I don't know. Um, I, as of this moment, I'm still just waiting to get everything back and then I'll just see. Um, because like I, I literally gave it out of hands to somebody else and then um, I just have to see what they're going to give back to me and then what I can do with it and how I can present this in a way that uh, honors their stories as much as possible. And I think it's also really cool that you want to do it by mail because then in a way when you open up their then you open up their envelope back you can like touch their scar a little bit and touch like yeah you get to tan you get to tangibly understand what their scars mean for them um yes but so the second half of that is what are your tell me a little bit about your scars and what do they mean for you yeah i mean oof, that's a difficult question i mean as in like it's a very intensive one i i mean the scars that i have are very symmetrical because I had um, four big episodes in my life where I had a leg lengthening, um, which means that they basically, um, like it's quite graphic. Um, they have to break your bone and then they put an iron or like metal construction around your leg. And it has bolts and pins going in from one side and uh, one side of your leg and, and going on the other side, outside of your leg. So they go right through everything, which means that by now my scars are very symmetrical. If I have like one um, elliptical or like circle-ish bump at one side, I'm going to have the other one exactly at the other side of my leg. So they're very yeah. symmetrical. There are a lot of stretch marks there because they stretch out the bone structure to make your leg longer but what a lot of people don't think about is that all your muscles have to follow or your skin has to follow the hair on your skin has to follow which gives this very weird side effect that at the times that I had these like episodes of leg lengthening I used to have like <laughs> leg hair that was literally six to seven centimeters long wow huge i had to yeah, yeah yeah i couldn't use like i couldn't even use a razor i had to cut it off because apparently like oh, wow. your whole body goes in like overdrive and then it, it it excessively um produces hair on the parts of that body so i had huge huge uh leg hair and i mean i remember that the last one i had i was about 14 and then you're still this like young and little girl and you're discovering your sexuality and all of a sudden you have this like leg with like five centimeters long leg hair on it and I remember I was so embarrassed and it was so like I felt such a freak at the moment because of my long leg hair um so yeah that happened um they're very symmetrical they're elliptical um they're in bumps and then I do have some very classic um like you know like the zip lines where you have like this one yeah. line and then like the surgical scars really from like surgical incisions. And mainly, I think for me, I think the best way that I can describe what they are for me is that in one of the texts that I have written for within my work is that for me, they kind of like, they are like some kind of like children's nightlight of a universe and they project the story of my body. Like I have this poetic image in my head that just if you could put a light bulb inside of my leg that it would just shine like 
you know, like these like star, starry night sky, children's night lights, and you would have this like beautiful image all around your house. And you could just like in constellation say like, oh, and that one is from that period. And that one is from that time. And that one is from that time. So for me, they're kind of like these very sacred and fluid memories that I keep with me. And their meaning does change over time. Um, which I think is something so interesting about scars. They're so vast in their identity. Like they, once you have scars, you can't really get rid of them. But the meaning of what they mean to you is something that is ever fluid and ever changeable. It can yep, grow. I have completely, I totally agree with that. And I've never heard that described that way before. And I like, I could listen to you talk about this for like another five hours. So you should start a <laughs> podcast or write a book or do like, you should do something with the scars because there's a lot there. I have there a zip. I have a scar from my spinal fusion surgeries that goes yeah. from the top of my shoulders all the way to my beautiful ass. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I remember getting that scar. I remember getting that at 16. And like, it's very visible now. If you roll me over, you can still see it. But mm-hmm. it, every time I'm with somebody sexually or intimately I worry about oh my god they're gonna see that scar what are they gonna say like are they afraid of it what are they gonna think about this like I still worry about it so yeah but now I also and when I was a kid I was horrified by that scar I'm getting better now but now I also look at it and think that scar saved my life because Mm -hmm. if I hadn't had that surgery who knows I could have I could have died quicker who knows so like I do think you're right the journey and the story of scars is so is so personal and so vast and so not talked about enough we don't ever talk about our scars and what they mean for us so I love as a disabled person with multiple scars I love that you're doing this I also think that there could be a part two where you ask disabled people to like tell me about the scar of ableism Tell me how ableism scarred yes. you and for your whole life. And like, what does that feel like and look like for you? Because yes. that's an invisible scar that we all have to navigate through. And it's really hard. Yes, absolutely. I mean, like, would you like to participate? I can send you an envelope. I'd have to get somebody to trace it for me. But I mean, I would love to, I would love to be a part of some part of it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I can send it to you and then you can you can see if you can manage to to make it work. And if not, like, I mean, we can get in touch and we can find solutions for that. If you feel like participating, I mean, I still have like a couple of leftovers. I can send you one. I would love I would love that. That'd be such a fun thing to do. And it was, I would be very honored to do that. Yes, please. Yeah, well, let's map that score. All right. I'm, I'm totally there for that. Um, let me just pull out my next question. So... One of the things you mentioned to me in your questionnaire was that you have a curiosity and like kind of an excitement for exploring what intimacy and touch are for disabled people. And we know how, I know, especially over these last 16 months, how important touch is for me and how Mm -hmm. hard it's been to not have touch. So for you, what does touch mean for you as a disabled person? And how does that translate into your to your understanding of intimacy? Touch for me is one of the most difficult things in my disabled experience, I think. Um, 
I grew up mainly, I think, in a lot of hospitals with a lot of surgery, with a lot of consent happening above my head, not being capable of having any agency in it. And I really, and I mean, it's still a journey that I am on. I'm still absolutely not where I would like to end up. Um, And it's still very much a learning process because also like, it's so difficult to talk about it because like you, you lack specifically just the language to talk about it. It's so difficult to translate something that you're feeling like touch into the words. So it's also very difficult to go to that. Like, for example, like to a therapist and being like, yes, my touch feels like this and that and that and that. You have to find these like metaphors and systems around it to kind of like somewhat make it work. But for me, like it's been like, it's, I can honestly say that for me, when it's within my disability, mostly is surrounded with my right leg. And for me, that mainly means that I do not have a lot of memories about that leg not being touched in a medical way. And then, for example, in my sexuality, that becomes something very, very, very complicated for me because sometimes I don't even know it immediately and I all know and, and I only realize it after afterwards it's like ah this really didn't feel good and I it, it really 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 was a struggle for me to get to know how for example like bodily memories like body memories work and how big their impact can be and the way that touch and then for example like also what is called like um, access intimacy like what is that like what is being capable of being touched by somebody and just feeling how your body relaxes and how it feels safe and how you can learn to feel that you're safe because sometimes I knew that I was comfortable but I couldn't really feel it because I didn't know what this feeling was I had to learn to feel what it feels to be safe with somebody um and so like in in relation to your leg like so if somebody was intimately touching your leg you'd be like don't don't what this feels weird because all you knew was yeah. medicalization of your body that way. Yeah. And I've also had some very bad experiences with it. Like, I mean, the, the, and I mean, within sexuality, I mean, like as of for now, most of the time when I have a new partner, mainly one of the things that I communicate is don't touch the leg as of kind of like a precaution as in like, it could be that I react very bad to it. And as of for now, I just want to enjoy myself. And this is not something that I want to address together with you in this relationship yet. When this then turns out to be like a very good and steady romantic relationship, this would be something that I would very much would like to explore. And I could even get to the point where I would specifically ask somebody to touch my leg. Um, But, and I mean, this comes from like having a very couple of bad experiences. Like I am a very passable person a lot of people don't know about my disability and even when for example when I have uh, when you have like a hookup or one night stand or you have this like fling going on like I have met people in my life that specifically wanted to touch my leg to kind of like to show me that it wasn't a problem and first of all that's harassment and secondly yeah. it's it's specifically I, I've always questioned oh, whether they're, so. they're touching it for themselves or for me. Like, it's much more a thing that they want to address for themselves, that they are okay with it, rather than addressing that I yeah. can be fine and can relax 
Um, and it's cruel. It's very And cruel also, you know, you talk like, about how they wanted, you talk about how they want to touch you. And my thinking mm-hmm. is like, well, they want to touch you to what? Show you that they're the savior and they're the ones that are going to yeah. snap you out of the trauma that you've experienced. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. not their that's not their place to do that. No. They have no right to do that. That's kind of gross no. and, and yeah. super ableist. And like, don't, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. You're here to give me an orgasm and not to cure my childhood traumas. <laughs> And I think we found the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it really feels like this. And then often also, like, it happens also mainly, I mean, I, I work as an artist. I'm known to be an artist. So, like, I also sometimes attract these individuals who are, like, very, um, like, they suffer from this kind of, like, Lolita complex. As, like, I am this young, ginger artist quirky person with a troubled past and it's like something they want to have and something they want to own and this dynamic connected with actually having very 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 intense and very negative experiences with that part of my body is a recipe for disaster so as of this point they just said no you're not touching it it's mine and I get to touch it and you get to touch it when I trust you and when I know that you are a good person and when you know that you are in this relationship with the right intentions. Yeah, and I think that I think I like how direct you are with that because you know people have tried to touch me in ways that I didn't want to either. And mm-hmm. and it's it's really something oh. I've had to learn. It was it was it, it was very difficult. It's so hard because especially if you're with an able-bodied person, I do this thing sometimes where especially if I'm with them intimately, I will let them touch me because I'm like, you're able-bodied, therefore you have the right to. Like my brain will just go, oh, they're able-bodied, they're higher, they're a higher person than you, so they can touch Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I don't I I I do it sub I do it unconsciously. I don't even realize I'm doing it sometimes. Yes. And I have to stop myself and go, no, you have a right to say no to this. Yes. You have yes. a right to yeah. And especially, I think the last one for me, like I had to learn and gain the knowledge that I actually can refuse to be touched in that part, that it is something that I can decide for myself. So for me, saying no to that, while for some people, like in first, like in their first idea, it sounds like I am very much like um, um, ignoring my problems, I am not addressing them, and I am kind of like doing this in a very wrong way actually for me saying no to that and say like you cannot touch this for me is actually very much point of emancipation and, and agency yeah yeah because throughout your childhood and throughout all the surgeries you went through you just yes. let, you had to let people touch you yes yes yeah, yeah 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 and that is exactly it like that leg for me is a very very troubled and and fearful and sad part of my childhood and that is not information that everybody should have. I should be capable of making that disclosure myself. It's but, not even inf- information that they can't have. It's information yeah. that they don't necessarily deserve. Like, yes. just because they're with you doesn't mean they deserve to know all the things. I love yeah. what you said a minute ago, where you said, you know, you're here to fuck me. You're, you're not here to give me... to cure my trauma if I want to let you cure my trauma I'll let you know but right now like (laughs) you're here for this I like that that's very like you're here to fuck me you're not here to cure my disability thanks the end like yeah 
Yeah, but then the problem is that like at one point, like sex mostly kind of like happens naked and then it does become visible. And for me, like my disability becomes visible as soon as I take off my pants and then there is something there. And then at the same time, you also have to make sure that it's not kind of like this elephant in the room, that this thing that cannot be addressed. It's kind of like finding this balance in between keeping your agency and saying that this is not somewhere they're supposed to go to. And at the same time, also not making it taboo and something yeah. that cannot be addressed at all. So it's kind of it saying is. like, no, you cannot do it. Maybe we'll talk about it a later time, but as of this moment, mm, nah. But also like recognizing that it's right there too. That's it's a really hard tightrope to like walk on. Of how do you? But, yeah, I think it's I think it's something in generally that is very much um, a thing with for people with disabilities. Like the gaze and the way that we are looked at. Like a lot of us have experiences with being gazed upon, being stared. And then, but the thing is like, it's a problem when you look, but it's also a problem if you don't look, because if you don't look, you're completely ignoring us. And then yeah. for example, as being an artist and an art historian, I am in the middle of this looking dynamic and I have to find a way of kind of like addressing an ableist gaze in my work and give them the right tools and give them the right information to actually give a transformative experience and and make that switch around and have them some kind of like maybe like a little a little part of a disabled experience so and that is I mean, my work yeah and so i'm I, I sense a struggle in you of like wanting to share disability from an artistic standpoint but also being like well if i'm disabled why am i not sharing this part of myself with the whole world all the time yes Yes. And for me, like it, specifically in an art education, it got very problematic because I did like we have like a bachelor's and master's systems. And I there is a five year gap in between my bachelor degree and my master's degree in arts. And that gap is there because I had a couple of teachers who treated me ridiculously ableist and specifically obliged me to wake work about my disability and I said no to that because I did not want to do it and that reacted wow they wanted to force you into making yes they wanted making to work force with me. yeah 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 because they thought that that was interesting and this made me special and I should make work with that and I mean it is no. interesting but only if you decide it is yeah. only if you the yeah, yeah, living yeah, it yeah, decides yeah. it is yeah I mean like making work about some of the most closest and most hurtful things in your life is very very it can be like very emancipating and make you very resilient and very strong but not in a context where you are first of all pushed and secondly when whatever work that you are producing um will decide whether or not you get a degree or not in terms of evaluations and getting scores and stuff I don't think it's the right opportunity to use your disability as a tool to get good grades because there's a word for that and that's called exploitation and exoticism yeah. and I said no to that and then from as of that point I was uh, uncooperative I was defensive I didn't want to work along with them and this kind of like escalated into a discussion where I just said well if this is the school that you are then I do not want to be part of that and now five no, years I wouldn't later, want to be part of it either. Yeah, and then now five years later, I am again in that school, but with a different teacher in <laughs> a different studio. 
And we're working towards a PhD proposal um, because we're very hopeful that I could get a teaching uh, position there. And, and so like I took the time to really work and, and get myself educated. And I like went on this like disability awareness travel for myself. And now I do feel like I have the right skills and the strength and the resilience in my body to address that issue and to address my disability and my work. But, it, but I, I choose it now. It's my agency. Yeah, I've made the yeah, active Elena, choice of doing that. It's, it's the choice that you made. It's not something that you were forced into. And I think, you know, when people unwittingly say, your disability is the thing I want you to create about and you're not allowed to make it. Like I often struggle with, I chose this career path for myself. I chose the, the, I made the decision to talk about disability every day in my work. And there's often times where I personally am like, hmm, I build myself as this disabled guy that does disability work. What if I wanted to do something else? Mm -hmm. Am I allowed? Am I like, so it really, it does, it does give you like a mind fuck where when all you do is one thing, especially related to like, because our disabilities are so personal and so intertwined with who we are, the minute we say, like, I've been doing this for 10 years. If I tomorrow said, I want to go do something entirely different. I want to go be a dog trainer or something, you know, something completely different. People will go, oh, are you going to make that about disability? And I'd go, well, no. And mm -hmm. they go, well, why not? So I, I understand the, the upset of like, let me decide when it's right for me, what I want to do. And also, if you're disabled, you're allowed to do stuff that has nothing to do with disability. And that's okay, yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But that was clearly something they didn't understand, which is predominantly their loss. I mean, um, it really is. Because look yeah. at now, you're doing... You're doing it bigger and better and you're doing what you'd like. But I think, you know, you as a teaching as a disabled art historian would be like so cool. And, and I, that is a huge compliment. And I mean, if that would happen, that would be a dream coming true. Like I'm picturing awesome. YouTube channels. I'm picturing courses. I'm like, I, yeah, I, so many things you could do with this. Like, wow. Um, I want to shift gears because mm -hmm. the last thing you said you wanted to talk about, it's so direct about this you said in your questionnaire that a few months ago one of your partners passed away yeah they were the first person that you ever loved and you ever can you can you talk about that and talk about the experience of grief and trauma and why isn't it why it's yeah. important to talk about that as disabled people yeah um I mean first of all like thinking today about like this interview coming up I was in my shower getting ready to like have dinner and then to talk with you and I was in my shower and I was thinking oh oh I made a mistake because I actually like this wasn't the first for like the first person that I loved with a disability because I remember that like my very 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 first boyfriend also had a disability um, but I mainly kind of like didn't kind of like recognize that or take that like took that into account because like I think I was like 
12 or 13 years old. So it was in my head probably oh, yeah. like, so that doesn't count. Um, and yeah. then second also, like, I think I highly dismissed that in my head because I remember that it was very, very heavily bullied uh, for the fact that I had um, a boyfriend in a wheelchair. Um, so Oh no, people stuck. That's yeah. awesome. I think that's great. Yes. Yeah. So I had to set that right. He's not like the, the, the partner that died was not the first person, but um, it was, he, this partner specifically had a very significant impact also on the way um, that I look upon like touch and intimacy um, and how um, kind of like how beautiful disabled relationships can be because this was a person who also had a disability with, a very similar set of, of symptoms and problems like I do. And it was not specifically that, but it was the fact that this person was and having this disability and at the same time also having the same interest that I have, um, having this character that I absolutely adored. And like it was the overall experiences of actually at core meeting somebody like me that was what it was about and that is what this person meant for me and then um we i actually knew him from my high school um but we kind of like bumped into each other again um last summer in 2019 and i think we also like we only got to spend like a month or ish together because then um my partner was sent to the hospital for a routine surgery um, that he often had for his disability and then it kind of like to summarize it very quickly it kind of became this like cascade of the one percent things that never happen from oh no lung like... embolism to uh, uh cardiac arrest to two weeks of coma to brain dead to palliative sedation to dead Oh, wow. Yes. That's, that's really hard because yes. I, can, I can imagine for you, and thank you so much for sharing and being so vulnerable with that because not an easy conversation to have and not an easy no. conversation to put in a podcast. So I appreciate that. But listening to that story, uh, you know, my first thought was, you know, because you have similar experiences of disability, were you, did you think about your own mortality and your own death and your own... Actually, in a very strange way, I thought more about the fact that I, I had survived my partner. I have survived a death. Um, I didn't really think of my own mortality as a way. Like, but I remember, and I like, I still have this. It's still, it's something that kind of like in this post-mortem identity that I now consider to have, as in like I've passed through the great beautiful months of very heavy and 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 all-compassing dark grief like I've passed through that and I'm now some kind of in this like some kind of like post-mourning situation identity um and I even have it till today I mean as of today I'm very much thinking of of like these like very typical like what if questions what if my partner wouldn't have died what if um this would have happened because as of right now I am having a beautiful relationship with another person that I met um, after the death of my partner. 
And so I, I've asked myself the question a lot of times, like, what if this person, my partner wouldn't have died, but then I wouldn't have met the partner that I have now and have a very beautiful relationship with. And I'm very much like, as of this moment in these kind of like, like thought experiments, but in the beginning, I just remember of, 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 of getting up in the morning and, and rolling my morning cigarette and opening the window and thinking, shit, I'm alive. And the impossibility of understanding that this person is never going to return and at the same time having this like existential weight coming down of your shoulders of all of a sudden you understand the world and how it works and what it means. And you are alive. You can breathe. You can feel the rain. You have this life that you get to live. And this other person will never be a part of it. And you will never heal from that experience. And it will be something that you will forever take with you. And kind of like having this very existential idea of shit, I'm alive. And then secondly, what the fuck am I going to do? Um, and I think That's my grief, heavy. Yeah, I think my grief was very, very much and involved, like resolved, evolved around these questions for me. Um, and then, I mean, for me personally as well, also, I mean, we talked about like the meaning of my scars. With that, it also kind of like changed their identity there, changed again for me because I knew that the partner I lost had had um, have had similar um, surgeries like I did. So we had scars in the same places. And as of for now, I really enjoy the idea of thinking that this person is somebody that I lost, but some through some very strange turn of events, I carry this person's scars actually also on my body because they're the same. And every time I look at it, I think of my partner and I really take it with me. And so you, you get into this like very disability grief dynamic yeah. where all of a sudden you understand that a lot about disability is very heavily connected to ideas of dying and mortality and grief and mourning and how very little we address this topic in in our disabled experiences i totally agree disability grief is something that i've been ex not i don't want to say excited by and i don't want to trivialize it but it's something that i've been fascinated by for a long while now because mm -hmm. especially i would say during the pandemic I've been thinking a lot about my own death and my own mortality and my own ability to survive. And what does disability grief feel like for you? I mean, for me, I don't know. I think very literally disability grief is something that comes along when you have, uh, where you, where, where you act, happen to end up with a disability due to an accident or due to an illness or something that happened in your life that is I mean the very literal definition of it as in like you grieve for something that you have lost like you've lost your arm or your leg and you're allowed to grieve by it but even that we don't even understand in terms of grief like it's very limited like grief is only that something that happens for when something dies 
but when we lose an arm or a leg or whatever, it's not something that we grieve about. But I mean, I think for me, with the disability that I have, I, I grieve. I mean, I grieve at a certain point for not having had in some kind of like innocent childhood. I grieve for all the trauma and the pain that I've had to experience. But I do also really consider grief a coming from a potential position of power and emancipation. And I really, I mean, if you grieve about something, first of all, you acknowledge that it's there and you know it's there. Yep. And then you grieve and you can have those feelings and then you can start doing with it. It's like something with it. You start to process it and it can actually, I think, even also I, sometimes in context of like disability rights or even like trans rights and trans activists and like, like grief and mourning can become like a very activist and a very, very like anarchist and rebellious statement, I think. And we really should be more aware of the potential that grief in our lives can have and how very powerful um, without sounding like a hippie now, but like how much power there can be in that grief. I t I completely agree with you. And there's so much that I would want to unpack there. And thank you so much for sharing your story today and for coming on. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. It was so, you had so much stuff to say. I'm going to have to sit back and figure out which thing you said. I want to make the like lead for the show. Cause there's so much awesome. great things you said. I loved it so much. So Josephine, how do we, how can the people follow you? How can they get a hold of you? How can they support I am, you? To... Yeah, I am terrible in social media. <laughs> so my apologies to everybody. But you can follow me on Instagram, you can follow me on Facebook, and I have my own personal website where you can also contact me through email and stuff. And I think that you um, will make sure that people can like find these links and stuff. Yeah, I'll make sure they're in the show notes, no problem. This was awesome. so great. I loved it yes. so much. And thank you so much for coming on today. And you and I will be in touch about that, that scar envelope because I really yes. want to be a part of that for sure. Let's do that. Awesome. All right. We'll talk, Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Yes. Thank you so much for being here today. Yes. Thank you too. Ciao. Bye. All right, everybody. Well, that's another beautiful episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. Thank you so much for sticking around and for listening and being there for every episode of the show. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com and you can book me for talks and see more of what I'm doing. You can also follow me on my Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore. That's where I do a lot of my disability justice and social justice stuff around disability, have a lot of great conversations around disability, and try to make disability accessible to everyone there. So follow me there. If you want to follow the podcast, you can download it on any podcast player, as well as you can go to the, our Twitter, our Disability After Dark Twitter, DisAftDarkPod on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode if you want to support the show again you can go to patreon.com slash disability after dark 
to pledge as little as $1 a month or $5 a month. Also, please, wherever you listen to your podcasts, leave us a five-star review. It really helps getting, getting the show noticed. Also, if you want to be on the show, pop me an email at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Let me know your suggestions for show ideas, things you want to hear on the show, stories about disability that you want a light shone on. Thank you so much for listening. I'm, of course, your delectable host, Andrew Gerza. Let's stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, and we'll be back soon. Thanks, friends. Bye. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Drew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020-2021